The temperature is nice and warm in the Boiling Point Podcast studio, so come on in, get cozy, and let's enjoy the conversation. We empower leaders through thoughtful discussions to positively impact our world. Our host, Dave Vale, founder and CEO of Vision Coaching, Inc., is highlighting how we can thrive in business communities. Our conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, and inspirational storytellers are shining a spotlight on empowerment. Joining Dave this week is our special guest host, Emily Roger. Let's join the conversation with Dave and Emily. Okay, well, hello, everyone. Um, welcome back to the Boiling Point. I just I just started to kick things off, Emily. I hope that's okay. Go to it. Uh, I want to catch up on your uh, the last 90 hours really quickly. Um, we've got an awesome guest, um, a really interesting topic. You may notice that I'm speaking slower than in previous podcasts. One in particular, Emily and I interviewed my father, uh, Ron Vale, former Chief Justice. I listened to it. I was talking so fast, and I don't know if I was nervous or excited uh, or what, but I would, and Emily, you showed up and you were just like, you know, clean, and, and, and Ron showed up really well. And then I'm like, who's this bumbling guy? So I'm going to make an effort to talk slowly. And Emily, can you keep me accountable, please? I don't know if I should be the one. I feel like I am the one that always gets excited and talks super fast. So it's funny that you notice that about yourself because oh, I, I feel like I feel like I'm always here, and it it takes a conscious effort to be like, okay, Emily, <laughs> bring it down. Yeah, well, I, I then I can relate to that. And the other thing is, I was doing a lot of this, you know. So it's funny how tough we can be on ourselves. And, um, and it's hard to be human, and we'll talk about that more in a second. Um, your last 90 hours, Emily. Tell yeah. us. Like, like you, anyone watching this, I mean, if people are listening to it, anyone watching it will notice that you look like fresh and relaxed, and, and yet you've, been, you've just come off 90 hours of travel. I did. I left, uh, I left La Junta, Chile, Sunday morning at 8 a.m., and flew into Fredericton this morning at 3 a.m. And uh, yeah, I've been all over the world, but it's like, that's the story of my life. Like, it's like, this is so normal. And so I was in Chile fly fishing um, at a lodge down there that I had been to before. And if uh, for any of the listeners who don't know, I am an avid angler and uh, love to search for fish. And a lot of the times it brings me to very remote destinations, but it was funny because two of the people who I, I brought three guests down to the lodge and two of them, actually all of them, it was their first time to South America. And they, and they were saying about how this was the most remote they've ever been. And while we were down there, I mean, for me, I had been there before. There's kind of that feeling of like, just, just knowing the place, knowing the people, knowing the rivers and it not feeling far from home. But then when it takes you 90 hours to get home, it's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this is uh, pretty far from home. Yeah. Well, and what a, what a distance to go. You know, it kind of hopefully we're at the tail end of the pandemic here, but you made it there and back successfully. I can't wait to hear more about it. Yeah. Um, and um, and I just thought it was worth certainly worth sharing. Um, and yeah, and it just actually, you know, we never, I don't know if we've done this before, but when, if people that are interested in learning more about you know, what you do in terms of fly fishing, what, how do they find, find out more about that? 
Yeah. So on for hosted trips that I do, um, the information is usually on my personal website, Emily S. Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R.com. And that's where I have some of my upcoming hosted trips posted. Um, Sometimes I'll post about them on LinkedIn or people can just kind of email me. A lot of the times what people will do is email and say, hey, if you have a saltwater destination coming up or if you're heading back to the jungle sometime soon, I'd love to join you on that trip. Um, So I kind of have a list of people knowing what specific species of fish they want to target. And then um, I usually kind of make travel plans from there so cool okay well i gotta take you up on that at some point um yeah I, and we you know i know yukon's a destination i don't know if i necessarily want to go there. i'd want to go somewhere else but well, we can talk about that later let's bring our guest in and um i got this wonderful email from ted and you can see ted here uh ted catsby and he's he's been listening to the po- the, the podcast and he was um has some really good, you know, research and writing uh, that he thought would be valuable here. And I tell you, I read this and I went, you know, how quickly can we get him on? And but it took a few months. Sorry, Ted. Um, as you know, um, it's best when our guests introduce themselves. So would you kindly introduce yourself to our? I'd list? be happy to do that. Yeah. I uh, my name is Ted Caspi. I'm a, uh, I guess, a recovering uh, bank executive. Um, I uh, ran a number of the wealth management businesses um, at one of Canada's largest banks, CIBC, and um, and then ultimately ran its uh, retail uh, distribution function, the branches across the country and some of its international operations. Um, And I left the bank uh, and uh, kind of diversified my portfolio of activities to include uh, corporate directorships, um, a lot of, um, interestingly enough, a lot of uh, uh, lecturing and writing on leadership at, uh, at the universities here, uh, two of them in, in Toronto, Ryerson, uh, Ted Rutter School of Business, and Rotman, U of T. Um, and I advise um, high net worth clients on their investments. So, you know, the spike of my expertise uh, in, in uh, banking was wealth management. So I, that's kind of my bread and butter is... Um, is uh, advising uh, wealthy individuals on how to manage their money. But I also have an interest in in the human condition. Um, When I was at CIBC, I wrote two books on investing, but they were geared towards the psychology of investing. Um, And when I left the bank, I wanted to write a book on um, complexity and leadership and how poorly people in general, not just um, in business, but in general, how poorly people handle complex problems. Um, so I wrote that book, uh, Closing the Mind Gap, which was published in uh, 2012. And then um, I wanted to write more and dig deeper into the human condition in a more um, broader sense, not just in terms of how we, dis- we, we struggle with complexity, and not as it relates specifically to a business and leadership, but on a day-to-day basis. Um, and that's uh, the culmination of, of my most recent book called Hard to Be Human, um, Overcoming Our Five Cognitive Design Flaws. And it came out just um, last October, 2021, uh, published by a Dundurn Press. And um I've been having a lot of fun engaging in the kind of conversations we're going to have today, talking about what makes it hard to be a human being. And more importantly, 
what tools do we have at our disposal to make it a little bit easier? Uh, because no one wants to read a book. In fact, a few friends and colleagues of mine said, oh, why would I want to read? A, that sounds like a real downer. Why would I want to read a book about uh, how hard it is to be a human being? I already know it's hard to be human. And I said, well, there's probably aspects of it that you don't quite understand. I certainly I didn't understand until I did all the research and thinking about it uh, and interviewing for it. Um, but half of the book is solution oriented. So I've structured as in the five uh, cognitive design flaws, problem, solution, problem, solution, problem, solution. So what are the five big problems and what are the five big solutions for each of these problems? And um, it's been a lot of uh, it's been a lot of fun and it's. It's got uh, some real um, traction uh, with curious, intellectually minded, self-reflective people. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of it's the kind of topic you either really take to and you're interested in and you want to do a deep dive on and talk about or not your cup of tea. So it's been very satisfying engaging with the people for whom it resonates. Well, I, I mean, I think um, I'm in, I know I'm in the camp and I'm guessing Emily's in the camp of like very curious to learn more. And, and I just, I can't help but say like, in, and we've just met, but in listening to you, I kind of think of myself as like, you'd be an awesome friend to have and to go for dinner with because you could just dig into your, you know, your thinking and you could be so much learning and I imagine fascinating conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, so Emily, what, what, what struck you when you, when you read this email from Ted and, and saw a little bit of his work? I was like, let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know the design flaws. I want to know the solutions. Actually, but on that, could I, could I, I, like, and I think what I find interesting um, is, you know, when you think of the people in, in, you know, stock market example and and decisions that are made, um, what I understand is often a lot of it's based on emotion. Yeah. And, 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 you know, generally people lose a lot of money because they're too emotional about their decision making. And that's my understanding. And I'm not, I'm not a, it's not mm-hmm. my expertise, but that's my sense in, in my own case. Um, and that's why I don't manage my portfolio because I just make bad decisions and I don't, you know, and it's, and it's completely, it's not logic associated. So, so there must, that must be where there must be some seeds or origins of this book in helping people invest money. Yeah, that's a nice segue uh, to the concept because it's where it all started for me personally was a deep curiosity and almost a, a, um, a confusion around why people made such obvious investment mistakes. Obvious to me as someone who's you know spent a lot of his education on, on developing expertise in investing um, and ultimately managing uh, wealth management businesses, but not obvious to, to, to people who are investing on a day-to-day basis. And um, it comes down to two things, I think, that interestingly enough, I would relate to some of the concepts of Buddhism. The first is exactly what you mentioned, Dave, overreaction, very emotional. And we can do a bit of a deep dive on this because it's one of the most fascinating things about being human beings is that we overreact and we're very emotional to pretty much everything. And there's a whole psychological basis for that. So let's park that for one second. I'll come back to it Um, because it's certainly one of the things that makes it hard to be human. But the second aspect of it that relates to Buddhism in my mind, is that the Buddha was very clear that 
one of the reasons we overreact, one of the reasons we're so emotional is because we don't understand the nature of reality. And when it comes to investing, I would add to what you say, Dave, that it's not just that we're very emotional and that makes us bad investors. It's that we don't understand how markets work. We don't understand the inherent randomness in stock prices. We tend to overinterpret noise um, as opposed to filtering it out well from signal, meaningful information. And so investing is, in a sense, a microcosm of everything that makes it difficult to be human. Um, and when I reflected on what the key messages from Buddha was, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't, um, I, I could see that not applying just to investing, but to the human condition in general, is that we're very reactive biologically for good reasons to avoid threats. Um, and we don't necessarily understand the true nature of reality and how it works. We oversimplify. We see a version of reality that works for us on a day-to-day -day basis, but doesn't work for us with anything that's a little more complex or challenging. And our long history encouraged us and was successful because we were able to oversimplify the world and see it in a very simple, superficial way, because our problems were pretty basic and pretty straightforward. Today, unfortunately, our problems and our situation is very complex on multiple levels. And the same kind of simple, intuitive way of managing problems that worked for us for uh, eons throughout our evolution don't work as successfully for us today in this environment that we're in. So maybe just a way to close off and then I'll turn it back over to you and see what you want to explore in more detail. We've got these complex brains that's the root of the human condition and they're complex in a way different than other animals because they create a lot of internal conflict for us. You know, other animals don't worry about their diets and how slim their figure is and what other animals are thinking of their um, physiques. So they don't worry about what they're eating. They just eat whatever's available and enjoy it until they're full. You know, and that's one example of how the complexity of the human brain is such that we um, have these internal conflicts within us. So that's one downside of the complexity of a human brain. Uh, the other element I've already touched on, which is that the brain was designed for a world that was harsh, but that sent pretty clear signals on how to survive. Um, today, the world is less harsh for most of us, at least in the developed world, but the signals are not very clear on how we can be happy and thrive because we've got all this noise coming at us from social media and the complexity of our problems don't compare to the simplicity and straightforwardness of the challenges that we were kind of groomed by natural selection to cope with. So I'm throwing a lot at you and the audience, and I'm, I'm turning it over to you now to see where you'd like to probe a little further and what kind of angles interest you. Go ahead, Edward. Well, I... I mean, I want to get into, like I said, the five design plots. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even um, because, and I had read a little bit about your work and read a little bit about your book. I haven't had a chance to read the whole book yet, but about, um, you know, even you speaking about our brains and that we as human beings do have all of these choices and 
other animals not having those same choices. And yeah. I remember um, reading, you know, of one of the design flaws and, and, and maybe this was just me picking it out as one of the main ones and it's not, but about this being functionally flexible. Yeah, yeah. So then it's like, okay, so we live in a world where we kind of have to be flexible, but then yeah. when is it too much and how do we find that? Yeah, like where is that happy yeah. medium? Yeah, good, good question. So the you're absolutely right. Every feature of the human brain works very well and has certainly evolutionarily been extremely useful to us for survival. But in the wrong circumstances, that feature can morph into a flaw. So, for example, the one you're touching on is we, unlike other animals, have a great deal of functional flexibility. We can be quiet and introverted uh, when it's appropriate. Um, and we can be extroverted and outgoing when that's more appropriate, when it suits us. Um, we can be aggressive in certain situations where we need to be. And we have a whole range, a whole repertoire of abilities to adapt to the room, so to speak, and, and morph ourselves into different kind of characters, depending on the situation. We're one way with our boss, we're a different way with our spouse, we're a different way with our children, uh, we're a different way with our neighbor, different way doing a podcast interview. And that's amazing. It's one of the amazing features of human flexibility. However, the cost of that is the flaw that all of these different aspects of ourselves can compete with each other. And we can, we can suffer internal conflict in a way that no other animal can. We can second guess ourselves. We can torture ourselves over simple things like, I really want that second piece of cake, but I am really trying to keep watch of my weight. Or I'm really tired, I don't feel like working out this morning, but I know I shouldn't make excuses because it'll become a habit. Or I wanna blow up and explode and tell my boss what I really think of them but I know that I want to keep my job. And, and uh, listen, we saw, it, we saw it, what was it, two nights ago? An amazing example of this, right? Uh, Emily, you were out of town. I'm sure you've heard everyone's talking about how Will Smith completely lost control of his emotions to a point where, you know, um, his career is going to suffer, uh, having smacked uh, Chris Rock on stage at the Academy Awards. Um, and I'm sure that there's a lot of kind of torturous machinations going on in his head about, you know, how could I have controlled that better? How, how did that happen? What should I do next? It was very interesting to see the process because he was very apologetic initially, but not to Chris Rock. It was only two days later, presumably under the influence and, and pressure of many of his handlers saying, you got to apologize to Chris Rock publicly because this is starting to go bad very fast. So, that's kind of a little good example of how difficult it is for us to manage the various characters within ourselves. And um, let me touch quickly on the five uh, uh, flaws because you'd mentioned them, uh, Emily. So the first is we, the feature, the feature of the human brain that works for us is we simplify everything. I've already touched on that. We couldn't otherwise. There's so much information coming at us all the time. We have to simplify our picture of the world in order to make decisions and get by. And that's great. That's served our purposes uh, for eons, as I said, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, but there's a risk that that morphs into a flaw, which is oversimplifying uh, what I call greedy reductionism, which is a term the philosopher Dan Dennett used, 
which is we are so greedy in our desire to simplify the world, we reduce it to something that is so superficial, it doesn't really represent reality. And we especially do that with other people, right? We're very prone to simplifying the motives and the personalities of other people. We recognize the complexity in ourselves all the time. Uh, if we do something uh, that we wish we hadn't, we've got a long list of excuses and reasons of why, why we were justified in doing it or why we were motivated to do it. When other people do things, the Will Smith being a good example, we just write them off as, oh, what a jerk. You know, the, 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 we, we assign them personality labels without assigning them the complexity of the situations that they're within. So, yeah, go ahead. On that, um, so would confirmation bias fit in this? In this, yeah, under this design flaw, absolutely. I would put. Thank you for bringing that up. Confirmation bias does apply to it, but it applies more to the second flaw, uh, which I'll talk to. Well, actually, let's segue to it right now because I'm glad you brought that up. We are satisficers for the most part. Which means that it's again, it's a psychological term uh, coined by a psychologist Herbert Simon. Um, and uh, what it means is we latch on to the first reasonable explanation we come up with that makes sense to us. Um, when you're shopping for a new house, you can't look at all the houses on the market. You satisfy by looking for the house that meets your needs after a certain level of search. Same with buying a car. Same with uh, um, um, a dating or, or, or picking a, a, a lover that you want to spend the rest of your life with. You don't interview everyone on the planet. You have to satisfy by picking the one that comes along in a reasonable amount of time that um, takes your fancy. Will we do the same thing with knowledge? Uh, as soon as we latch onto an explanation of something, like he's a jerk, rather than digging deeper for more understanding of what might have caused him to act that way, uh, we're satisficing. And so, that helps us survive um, because we have to make... Uh, uh, yeah. I'm just wondering, like, so, like, I know we were going to get through the five, but if, yeah. is it okay if we interject and just... Yeah, yeah please do, please okay. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so, um, all these questions are coming to my Yeah, brain. good. Um, but I'm just thinking of how, um, you know, the first two that you've talked about, design flaws, uh, really help explain in many ways, and I'm sure the other ones do as well, but like the, 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 what seems like the major polarization of views, you know, like of, of a, of a, you know, what COVID-19 actually means. Do you vaccine or no vaccine, mask, no mask. Yeah. And, and it's almost like you have to retreat to this idea of satisficing because I, I find it exhausting. Like I'm trying to, make sense of things and and something fits and this other thing doesn't fit and then i get yeah. information and yeah. and then and then we got these tribes that start to emerge right you know yeah. if you ask a question well you must be this way or this way you know just act in just in, in trying to get more information yeah does that does that fit at all for you it, it definitely fits but what i would tweak is satisficing is when you lock down a conclusion um um early on in the process which is appropriate much of the time, but it can morph into the flaw of, of overconfidence. Because when you're dealing with complexity and the vaccines, the pandemic, masks, social distancing, very complex set of dynamics. And our risk is being overconfident in the conclusions we draw on that. 
Um, and, and the flaw is that we're addicted to certainty. We, we, we are literally addicted to certainty. That's the whole mechanism and satisfying thing is that you lock down in your conclusion because we do not like, the human brain does not like the discomfort of not knowing, does not like the discomfort of feeling like the world's not in my control because I don't quite get it. Mm. So what I would tweet, Dave, is, is not that we have to rely on satisficing in those conditions, although we do. You're absolutely right. Ultimately, you make a decision to get the vaccine or not, wear the mask or not. But the more important element of, of fighting this uh, certainty addiction is to suspend your, your willingness to lock down on conclusions. And so for those examples you gave related to COVID, I would say, well, the science is, is still evolving. We think we know a fair amount about the vaccines and the usefulness of masks and social distancing, but there's still a lot more to, to understand and dig and research on. And therefore, we have to be very careful about the conclusions we draw um, and not consider any of what we hear as being final. So... One thing I get nervous about, Dave, in the context of what you just raised is when people say follow the science, because the science, it, science in general is evolutionary. Science, the process of science is that it arrives at provisional truths that can be overridden and, and undermined over time as more research comes out. And that's how science works. So following the science to me essentially requires that we take what we know with a bit of a grain of salt, act on it to the best of our ability, um, but recognize that that's going to change because that's the nature of science. Science very, very rarely comes to a definitive, never-to-be-challenged truth. And um, linking back to your point, Dave, that's where uh, confirmation bias kicks in. Um, because we're so addicted to certainty, because we so desperately want to lock down our conclusions – we will grab any and every piece of evidence we can to support our conclusions. Uh, and that gives us the bias of confirming what we think is right. Um, and that's very... Uh, ignoring anything that... That, that challenges it. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. It, it's, I, I find it such a, um, an interesting... To be caught in that. Like to catch yeah. yourself being caught in it, as an example. Or to hear people who respect the caught in and, and we, um, Emily and I both are executive coaches or leadership coaches. I know. And what I find really helps unlock that is when you really just listen to understand, yeah. not to not to not to necessarily um, agree with someone, but just to understand their perspective, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and and often what I find, I don't know, Emily, if you find this, but I I find it actually starts um, just shifting my perspective just because I'm listening. Maybe without an agenda, without or trying to, anyways, to the degree I can. Do you agree with that, Emily? Have you noticed that at all? Yeah, I do, and I think for me, it shows me the process that other people are going through, and that it is a process, and it is a conscious process of kind of stepping back, like how easy it is to, when we satisfy, then have those confirmation biases. Yeah, and that it can just be such a slippery slope from there, and and taking that moment to then kind of step back and see, like, okay, what am I actually missing out on here? What information am I only wanting to hear mm-hmm. versus that actively listening to all of the information? And I'm guessing that is one of the 
hardest but but most crucial elements of being an executive coach is asking the questions that gently probe people to get them to think about what they're missing in the bigger picture. Because we all have such, we have these little blind, uh, uh, not blindfolds, um, you know, I forget. We know horses. Blinders. Thank you. We all have these blinders on. Thank you. That we see such a narrow perspective of the world that often to other people is conspicuously narrow. But as an executive coach, you don't want to be trampling on them and saying, you know, wake up, see the bigger picture. So-and-so probably wasn't as nasty as you think he was. You're overreacting to this. You've got to be very adept at diplomatically asking the questions to let them expand their perspective. It really Um, helps, I find, is the less you know about the environment, the situation, the sector. Because if I... If I'm talking to some, if I'm coaching someone around building a coaching business, which I've done over the last almost 17 years, I have a perspective and I have, I, I'm, I have all, I think I know the, the path and it is really hard to let go of the path that I think yeah. a person should take. Yeah. So I find it's been very valuable um, to work with like a lawyer or engineer, or, you know, or a heart surgeon where you just, you don't know their world. So you just, you ask naturally kind of, um, I'm not dumb, but just, you know, questions because you just, you know, and I often preface it with like, this might sound a little off off beat or crazy, but, you know, can I ask you the following thing? And and sometimes that really can, um, that simple question. Yeah. It opens up a different perspective. Yeah. Well, especially because with your, with your client base, you know, all the characters in their play, you know, how the drama usually unfolds. I mean, I'm speaking for everyone. We all have these little plays in our head, right? Where we're the main character, we're the protagonist, everyone else is our antagonists. Um, and we just think everyone's watching the same play that we are, which is the funny thing about human beings, but we're all in our own little plays. We're not watching other people's plays. We're watching our own little plays. And, uh, and as an executive coach, I'm assuming you can get a bit uh, caught up in the, the particular play the drama that's unfolding with that client and you and you think yeah yeah i know all these characters i know how everything works mm-hmm. and you, you could almost get uh sucked into their version of reality if you're not careful it's a very delicate balancing act between not buying into their play entirely but also being very um handling them very gingerly and diplomatically so that you build their trust so you're not constantly feel they're not feeling like they're being constantly challenged by you and second guessed by you um one thing i'll just quickly add in here so for each of the five features that turn into five flaws i have fixes um and the only reason this came to mind is because one of the key fixes for both oversimplifying and overconfidence is asking questions and most of us are not very good question askers we want to jump to solutions we think we think we think again at satisfying a certainty addiction, even as an executive coach, we think, okay, I see what's going on here, and I've got to help my clients see the true reality or the big picture. And the best way to really get to the Emily, you mentioned the missing information. There's always missing information, always, always, always. The best way to get to that missing information is through uh, really adept question probing. And um, I, I think questions are underutilized. My experience is less on the executive executive coaching side and more on the corporate director side. And I find corporate directors don't ask enough really good probing questions. You know, they might be too willing to accept whatever management says, 
or on the other hand, they might be too determined to ask um, questions that are challenging just for the point of being challenging. They are not information seeking, missing information seeking, open perspective, geared type questions. So I think question asking is a real art form that clearly is one of the main tools that you'd be using for executive coaching. And I think something that all of us can share, no matter what the role we have in particular, sorry, I'm rambling here. I'll, one more point, and then I'll shut up and let you, let you ask some questions in our romantic relationships, like everything that we've talked about, whether it's executive coaching, corporate directorships, I find are really useful in our close relationships, not just romantic necessarily, our familial relationships, our relationships with our friends, but especially with someone that you're spending a lot of time with, you tend to make a lot of assumptions about, you think you understand the drama in their heads because you've been down this road many times. You're not as inclined to give them the benefit of the doubt or ask the kind of questions that you might for other people in your in your lives. And so I think a lot of these learnings are very applicable to to the, the romantic relationships that we treasure so much in our lives. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, and with that, I, I find personally that that is the, you know, Dave, you touched on, it's so much easier to stay curious when we don't know someone. Yeah. Because we, we honestly don't know. But when it is a personal relationship, then we do, I do, I'll speak for myself. Yeah, have these assumptions of how someone's going to react and, oh, this is a trigger. This is what this person's going to do. This is how this is going to go. Yeah. And then often... For, for myself, I've been aware of how am I not holding space to allow the other person, whether it's a partner, a sit, my, one of my siblings, to respond differently. And instead of me just waiting to hear what I know, what I think I know is going to be said or their point of view. And um, in touching on, you know, you speaking about the leadership role and one of the things that really stood out to me when I was reading about your work was you referencing them as chief conversation facilitators. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you for bringing up that. That's exactly what I view the leader of today, the most unpublicized, uh, the least discussed, but crucial, crucial, crucial ability, talent uh, for any leader today is being a very good facilitator of conversations because I liked how you picked up on it earlier, Emily, when you said there's missing information because um, it's one of the key elements in the book that I state right up front that if you accept the premise that we simplify everything, then the 
the uh, corollary to that is there's always missing information. And so as your role in a, as in a leader's role, you want and need to uncover that missing information to make good decisions. And the only way you can do that is by facilitating really genuine, constructive conversations with the team you're working with so that that missing information is revealed. And that ability to be the facilitator of a constructive conversation where there is conflict and disagreement, but it's not personal, it's more about the issues and not the people, where there's you're avoiding uh, groupthink, right? Which is our inclination when we get into groups is just to coalesce around a, uh, uh, a viewpoint. That's an underappreciated skill. I think too few leaders today, unfortunately, political, uh, industrial, commercial, nonprofits have really developed that ability to, to facilitate the kind of conversations we need when we're dealing with all of these kind of complex problems, climate change, pandemic, you know, you name it. Look at the, you know, we're in a very difficult situation now with Russia. Um, I don't envy the people that are, are you know, on a day-to-day basis trying to figure out what move to play in this, in this game theoretical uh, uh, scenario that's coming to life before our very eyes. So um, thank you for bringing that up because I think the ability to facilitate conversations is a leadership skill that we need to be talking a lot more about these days. A comment, I want to get to the, the other design flaws here before we... Yes, yes. <laughs> um, yes. But, I, but before that, I was just going to, if I could comment on one thing, I, it's funny, like you, I, you work with teams, you know, that whole idea of groupthink, and and this real um, and I mean I'm very guilty of this as well. But you want to you want to jump to solution really quickly, and, yeah. and I'll warn the team ahead of time. Say, okay, we're going to go through some steps here, and and you have to go through all these steps before you come to solution, because and people will get actually agitated with you and, and almost kind of angry because like no, no, this is this is the answer right here. Yeah. And what I understand, I'd like to hear your perspective, and then we can get into the other design flaws, is. I think cognitively, I, I read once that were, um, or a couple of times, I believe, that we're really hardwired. Like it feels good to come up with a solution. Yeah. Yeah. And if it's no, right. solution, right. it's just a solution. And there's some, you know, some hit of dopamine as a result of that, I believe. Absolutely. You're spot on. And it's the exact inverse, the other side of the coin of what I said maybe 10 minutes ago, which is we abhor uncertainty. We abhor the discomfort of not knowing and not understanding and feeling we're out of control. I usually use the analogy of, of you're in a car, you're driving, you, you'd get this in New Brunswick, you'd get it in Ontario, you lose control on the ice and your heart just stops and you freeze. And until you get traction, you don't relax. But once you get traction, wow, do you feel good? And it's the same thing with a complex problem or something that's pressing that you don't understand. It's the same kind of like, what's going on here. It's a very uncomfortable feeling. And once you get traction by understanding, then you calm down. But the problem is that your understanding might not be the real understanding. Again, it comes down to satisfying. If you can latch onto something that makes sense, you get that comfortable feeling of traction. You get that dopamine hit, as you say, Dave, of, oh, it's all good now. I'm comfortable. I'm in control because I understand. But, you know, when it comes to complex situations of which we have too many today, we often really don't see the whole picture. We don't really understand. We just want the adrenaline hit of feel, or the dopamine hit, I should say, of feeling that we've got it all under control. 
in fact, and you you know, use your metaphor, you might get traction, but you're you're facing the wrong, your car's facing the wrong way. Mm, that's nice. I like that. Oh, I like that. That's, that's good. Can I use that, Dave? Can I use yeah. that? That is really Absolutely. good. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Vale. Yes. <laughs> Please attribute it to the boiling point. We need we want all the listeners that we can get. So what are the other design flaws? Just a quick okay, so yeah, just quickly, uh, we covered we covered uh, oversimplifying, we covered uh, overconfidence. Uh, the third one we touched on is overreacting. I'll just say a quick word on it. We can do a deep dive on I'll, what I'll do is I'll mention the last three and then you can follow up with any kind of questions you want. Any of them overreacting is uh, the, has the genesis of a negativity bias. So for us, pain is more painful than pleasure is pleasurable. A, 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 a criticism. If someone gives you a compliment, That'll last an hour or two. It'll make you feel good. If someone criticizes you, probably two or three days, you'll still be stinging from it and thinking about it. So again, I won't go into a lot of detail now, but negative is more than positive for us. That's how we are designed. We are designed that way. And that is, you know, keeps us out of trouble and keeps us alive. But boy, that can create a lot of difficulty for us. Um, the next fourth of five is we've already talked about. We have great ability to be functionally flexible. We can be different characters in different situations. But the flaw is that we compete with ourselves. We suffer from internal conflict that could be quite torturous for us in a way that no other animal shares. And then the fifth is a little more cerebral. And we probably don't have time to go into much detail of it today. But it's actually one of the ones that I find most uh, interesting is that the, the, the feature is that we make sense of everything. We are very quick at taking in information and coming up with conclusions, sometimes prematurely, but we're kind of an information processing machine. But the flaw is that we struggle with bigger questions that we don't have easy answers for, like what is the meaning of life? And what should I be doing with my life? And we take our information processing systems too far in trying to come up with solutions that aren't necessarily useful for us in terms of bigger questions about how to spend our lives, what the meaning of life is, what happens when we die. And um, there are fixes for this as well. Again, I should emphasize, none of these fixes are Ted Casby's fixes. I'm not smart enough or creative enough to solve all of the world's problems, let alone the human problems. But I, I, I do have an ability to corral other people's ideas, philosophers, psychologists, scientists, neurologists. And, and that's the essence of my work. And the essence of my book is bringing all those ideas to bear on these problems. I love it. Um, Emily, why don't you, why don't you, uh, I know you've got probably a really excellent question. And then I can do, a, I can do a, a follow up to that and we can, and then we can wrap, wrap the interview up because believe it or not, it's amazing how quickly time goes. And I yes. feel like you need a lot more time with Ted. I know. I want like the rest of the week. <laughs> we haven't even fixed. Now, uh, I'm just grateful to know I only have five flaws. <laughs> that's right. This, that seems manageable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, like, um, Dave, you touched on it earlier, like that dopamine hit. And mm -hmm. then Ted, like how... We get that dopamine hit by being negative. So no wonder so many people love to stay stuck in that negativity. And it just like, it blows my mind that just about that, that concept of that pain is more painful than pleasure is pleasurable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And we over-ruminate as a result. We just torture ourselves going over and over and over the injustices we've suffered and, and the wrongs that people have done. And we get into little tribes, right? That then start fighting with other little tribes, the political left versus the political right, the climate deniers versus the climate alarmists, the, the anti-vaxxers versus the vaxxers. It goes on and on and on and on and on. Just uh, one of the little tricks that I've found extremely helpful for myself in my life that I picked up on my reading and research and my interviewing of academics is to constantly ask myself throughout the day, how much does this matter? So if someone cuts me off when I'm driving or butts in front of me in front of a line or bumps into me accidentally or says something that I interpret in a negative way, you know, my inkling is to overreact because I'm a human being. And I have to catch myself and say, how much does this really matter? Will I remember this tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now? Can I let this go because it doesn't matter? And nine times out of 10, nine times out of 10, the answer is this really doesn't matter that much. And just pausing to ask myself that all important question, how much does this matter, kind of opens the world for me a bit and pulls me above myself. It helps me self-distance, right? Distance helps me get out of my own little drama, my own little play and, and look at me and look at myself from above and just say, you know, Ted, this issue that you're stewing about, that you're angry about, that you're losing sleep over, let it go because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I love that. Oh, that sorry, Dave. No, I was just going to no, go ahead. Emily. I was just going to say that takes a lot of discipline. Um, it does. It does. It does. Again, we're, we're running out of time. All of this stuff takes a lot of discipline. The macro solution is what I call the space between. You've got to be able to pull yourself into the space between stimulus and response, right? We get stimulated by something, often very negatively, because we have a negativity bias. And we need the ability to jump into a little protective space where we can take a breath and pull ourselves up from bird's eye perspective and do some real human type special thinking that allows us the kind of freedoms that, that Emily was talking about earlier. Um, so that's kind of the macro solution to the human dilemma is, is finding a, an ability to get yourself into the space between so that your responses to the world are more well thought through and more um, useful to you than the immediate responses that would come without a space between. Mm. Yeah, you know, I look at, we talked earlier about my last 90 hours of travel and what a prime example of seeing that than in an airport Yeah, when people have misconnections. Oh, oh, you're going for another PCR test. Oh, you've been randomly checked for whatever. And, you know, I, I traveled home with a good friend of mine, Monica Adair, who's a listener of The Boiling Port and has been on this before. And her and I, we had so many little hiccups happen over the last 90 hours where And we see people in similar situations overreacting, being negative. And, you know, her and I, we laughed through it all because it's just like, this is life right now. And we have the choice of like, okay, are we going to fill out this form again? Regardless, it needs to be done. Um, Are we going to get down on ourselves and be angry at the person? Or are we just going to carry on and do it? And if we can approach so many more of those situations in life, which takes a conscious choice to to do that and it's not always easy at time especially when you're tired oh gosh and i'm just like how much more enjoyable it makes an experience 
or how less painful. It, it doesn't, yeah. what you just described doesn't sound enjoyable at all, but I guess much less painful than all the people that are around you that were torturing themselves about how awful the situation was. Yeah. Well, kudos to you. That's amazing. I don't know if I could have pulled that off, to be honest. Even with all my research and writing and thinking about this every day and talking to people every day, I might have, I hate to say it, I might have been one of those people melting down. It would have taken, Dave, you're absolutely right. The amount of discipline it takes. And again, Emily, maybe because you're, I know you're a, uh, you, you were a very serious cyclist. So you obviously are able to delve into depths of discipline that many of us are not necessarily capable of doing. And maybe that reflected itself in your ability to be disciplined about how you handle that situation. Because Dave is spot on. The amount of discipline it takes to, to, to be mindful of those situations and how you are vulnerable to torture yourselves and how you have the freedom to not torture yourselves. Um, it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice. Uh, well, and you know, and there's all these, as you pointed out, Emily, like those triggers of a lack of sleep. Or for me, oh. a, a big one is I get angry. Like, angry, when I'm, yeah. oh my like, god, when I'm hungry. Like, like literally, like people that know me well will say, "Dave, go get something to eat," because yeah. I'm just being unreasonable, and I'm yeah. and I'm even feeling myself being unreasonable, and it's like it's like I can't stop. It's, it's crazy. Those so, are the two biggies, sleep and food. You're absolutely right. Okay, well, that's because I, man, I am really bad about food. Um, <clears throat> what I was, uh, I was just going to make a comment, and then I was going to, and then I think it would be great for you if you could to share where, you know, people can find your materials. Sure. And more you and, and um, um, but I was thinking of this you know, idea of, I don't know if it, you know, connects completely with overreaction. I think it does. But I was just watching the interest rate creep up, you know, or the potential for it. And, um, and, and, and in a variable mortgage. And, um, and it, so immediately my, my reaction is lock in, right? And then yeah. someone patiently explained to me in a way that I hadn't thought about what, what the benefit of that may not be, you know, there may not be the benefit I'm looking for. Right. Um, I should say we actually, it's, it's not just my mortgage, but, but it's just, but it was just information that was required, but it had it been left to my own, um, you know, myself and making a decision, I would have made a decision that probably, you know, and I guess we could debate this, but I just, it's just funny how often that shows up in different things, you know? And Absolutely. We want quick solutions. That's right. what our brain are designed for. And right. that worked brilliant for us uh, uh, for uh, thousands of years on the savannah where we need to make quick hunting decisions, quick survival decisions. And in fact, it worked very well for us for, you know, over 10,000 years as, as farmers um, but in today's world, you know, it's a, we can't abandon it. That's the, that's what makes this so difficult. We can't abandon the sat. You pointed it out, Dave. The satisfying it works for us much of the time, so we can't abandon it. But there are so many an exploding number of situations today where it doesn't suit, and we have to become more adept at recognizing that our intuitive, quick responses don't work in these certain circumstances, and that's. And so that's another element of the discipline you were talking about, being able to recognize when you are acting and thinking too quickly and reacting too quickly um, versus when it's helpful and it's okay to be doing that. So we've gone uh, well over what we typically go, and I know we could go way deeper. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I think we should, this would be a perfect place to end. Um, how do people learn more about you? Find your book. Yeah, uh, yeah thank speaker, you. Um, get you on a podcast, all that good stuff. 
that's very kind of you. I, I'll keep it very simple. The book is Hard to Be Human. Um, it's available wherever you get your books, Amazon, Indigo, find bookstores everywhere. Um, I think this, I'm on Twitter and YouTube, but I think the simplest way to, to uh, reach me is through my website, tedcadsby.com. The last name is C-A-D-S-B-Y, tedcadsby.com. And everything about me and my work is on the website. So that's the easiest way to, to reach me. Ted, you are, um, I love your passion, uh, your the topic. It's, I mean, what an enjoyable guest you are. Thank you so much for reaching out. And, um, and, and I, I don't know, I, like, I've said this to, you know, many guests, but this is, you know, and this is one of those conversations that I just feel like we could continue to have maybe a part two at some point. Well, maybe, maybe we can have a follow-up sometime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, um, take us out. Yeah, I, I think with that, it, you know, I was just thinking, Ted, of you make it easy to actively listen. Oh, that's sweet. That's a nice compliment. Well that's a nice compliment. Thank you. And, and you know, of those, just those five words of there is always something missing. Yeah. And absolutely. how we can apply those five words to so many different aspects of our life of even in that moment of you feel that triggering, you're about to react of just taking that second to ask what is missing yeah thank you the very nice compliment and a real pleasure to join you today i'm a fan of the show and um uh i was thrilled that you asked me to come on and i'm, I'm glad it worked out awesome yeah we're gonna let jovia tell the listeners how to you know all the stuff about how to find us and all that stuff yeah so if if you're like ted and and somebody a friend of yours has sent sent along our podcast and you're looking to find out more um, you can head over to our website boilingpointpodcast.com um, you'll see all of our different previous conversations and episodes there uh, you can listen on any of your favorite podcast channels or platforms you can also find us on social media so on linkedin facebook and twitter and if you'd like to watch the video versions you can find them on facebook and youtube and a big help um, which dave mentioned as well is you can share this out with your friends so be like ted's friend send it along to somebody else and maybe if it's something that you're interested in drop us a note and we can maybe have you on as a guest well done okay bye everyone bye thank you, thank you ted bye bye get thanks, some sleep ted. emily yes <laughs> Thanks, Ted. Take care. Be in touch. Thanks for listening to the Boiling Point Podcast. Remember to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite listening platform. To find out more, head to our website at boilingpointpodcast.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. To find out more about Dave Vale's work, head over to visioncoachinginc.com. Thanks for listening, and make sure to check out our next conversation. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.